Hi, I'm Paul Cheel, and you're listening to the Public Relations Podcast, Smoke Signal. The biggest communication story of the past year has, without a doubt, been getting as many Australians vaccinated as possible. It was just over a year ago, at the start of 2021, that the vaccine rollout in Australia began. At the time, Australia had felt it was winning the battle against COVID-19. We had shuttered our borders and local cases were relatively low. But vaccine hesitancy, inconsistent messaging about the effectiveness of vaccines and general apathy saw Australia quickly fall behind in what became a vaccination race. One person who has been deeply engaged in this communication challenge is Darren Bihar, who is managing partner at one of Australia's largest independent consultancies, Senate SHJ. Darren joins me on this episode of Smoke Signal to discuss how communicators have been at the front line of this vaccination rollout, facing, among other challenges, disinformation, anti-vaxxer resistance, and a declining trust in government by the general public. Darren, thanks for joining me on this episode of Smoke Signal. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Can you take us back to that time in early 2021 and give us a picture of what challenges were being faced from a communication perspective in rolling out what was a very new vaccine? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, contextually, I think we were, uh, first of all, all tired. We were tired of COVID-19, probably tired of being told uh, what to do, um, tired of the uncertainty. And I know many of us were tired of listening to the 11am or the 11.30 press conference. Uh, And as you said in your your intro, I think we were also probably very complacent. Uh, We did think we had uh, beaten the COVID-19 challenge. And in 2020, I think there was a lot more kindness, care, and probably empathy going around. Um, We were probably more united in our fight against the pandemic and certainly more attuned to receiving and acting on government communication. But I think early in 2020, things began to change. And I think that's in part because of the lack of clarity from from government. Um, There was, you know, obvious uh, infighting started to go on and various versions of the truth portrayed about the uh, vaccine rollout, various narratives. Uh, it's certainly a lack of alignment across the states and, and the federal government. Uh, and maybe that lack of urgency um, in terms of the vaccine rollout had just begun to, to, to creep in. Uh, and as you also said, I think polarisation was on the rise. You know, misinformation was an issue. Trust in government had fallen. Um, and so, you know, it was a bit of a mess from a communications context perspective. Yeah, 2021 was supposed to be the year when it was all positive, right? But it didn't really turn out that way. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, and I think, uh, you know, we're still paying the price for uh, some of that chaos early in 2021 uh, now um, and some of the challenges uh, that hopefully we get to talk about uh, as we progress through the podcast in terms of, you know, misinformation and disinformation and the effect that that's having on the communication environment now had their beginnings um, in early 2021. But I guess it's in many ways understandable that there was that chaos because there was no playbook for this type of communication rollout, right? It was, you know, it was on a, on a grand scale. Everybody was watching. And I guess what was, what did communicators, how did they start? How, what did they have to consider given that there was no playbook to go to and, and refer to? 
I think it's a really good point to say that you know there was no playbook, uh, and and that's not just obviously for communicators. So we can get caught up in the the feds didn't know what they were doing, or the states didn't know what they were doing, you know, uh, and so on and so on. Well, actually, we were making it up as we went along because no one had really faced this challenge before. Um, from a communications perspective, though, I think uh, it's fairly. It would have been fairly easy to get caught up in all the confusion and certainly the comp- com- complexity. And I think that the critical thing to remember was good communication always starts with first principles. And I think after after a while, that's certainly what we saw with communication. This was about getting cut through amidst all the chaos, amidst all the noise. Um, and, and you know, if you think about first principles, it's really about a deep understanding of what is going to motivate action in different communities, different individuals, different places, et cetera. And that was key in um, in early 2021. And as we move through the through the year, you know, a big shiny ad campaign was one thing and probably needed. But we also knew that peers, friends, family, and trusted stakeholders, trusted organizations in our life are more likely to motivate um, motivate us to change. Uh, and to, to to change our behavior to drive action and in this case vaccination um, I think the other thing for me was one story was never going to be enough um, you know a mass kind of communication campaign t- with one message was uh, fine for building awareness I guess and and and, uh, and knowledge but uh, we needed more than one story to actually target the different individuals the different communities uh, and you know that was slow to get going uh, but after a while, the different narratives did cut through. I think the grassroots was key uh, and helping uh, people, uh, you know, if, if you like at the coalface on the front line, whether they be local government, business stakeholders, et cetera, uh, reach their own stakeholders, particularly those vulnerable groups um, during the outbreaks um, in the winter last year. Um, and then obviously monitoring sentiment, monitoring how communication is going and adapting as necessary. And that was you know, really necessary throughout the whole of last year. Yeah, I'll pick up a couple of points there. I mean, I think on that last point, the adaption, I mean, things just change so quickly, right? So, I mean, that speed of being able to move and change direction pretty quickly must have been, you know, paramount. Absolutely. And that required a lot of coordination from a lot of different um, agencies, a lot of different stakeholder groups. And um, one of the things I think to come out of this is, is very much, the ability to, to to move at pace to assess sentiment and to adapt uh, pretty quickly. Um, I think one of the good things to come out of it is the is the use of of insight and real time insight to drive um, narrative to drive communication, and I think that will stand us in good stead in the future. And what about some of those narratives you talked to? What are, what are some that you think worked and, and maybe didn't work? Well, I think we can all agree that the, uh, the the one that didn't work was the "it's not a race," <laughs> um, uh, which really obviously came back to to bite the to bite us on the bum, if you like. Um, I think the the key thing, as I said earlier, was um, the need for more than just one story. Um, the need to think about actually uh, the different types of appeal that work with different individuals in different communities. Um, and for me, there were three uh, critical stories, if you like, three key appeals that um, were needed. Uh, obviously, that that health perspective, of course, uh, but also the lifestyle and economic perspective. So 
when we think about what we're, the story, the story kind of referencing that duty as a citizen, uh, whether it's to, you know a citizen of Australia or a citizen of a particular state, um, there's the appeal that was pretty prominent uh, in a lot of communications around the consequences, and, and that's not to talk about fear, but it is to talk about uh, things like the opening of our borders so we could go and see relatives and friends and travel again, the opening of the economy, uh, whether it's your local cafe or um, you know the city in in Sydney or the city in Melbourne or or elsewhere around um, Australia. So you know those two kind of consequences and duty as a citizen, combined with the final one, which I think was the most important, probably that responsibility to family, friends, and community. I'm doing this so we can keep my grandma safe, or so I can see my friends and my family, etc those three combined i think were the most important stories and and together actually drove um, the up, uptake of the vaccination after we got through that kind of you know initial um uh group of people who were always going to take the vaccine regardless of what was going on yeah but it was still a very slow start wasn't it it was it was kind of we didn't race out of the block so do you feel it was those narratives that that kind of came together over time and it kind of just built momentum or or did you see kind of a a real turning point of something that kind of happened that that made that progress just speed up so quickly as it did? I oh, look, I think we'd be um, silly not to acknowledge the fact that the two outbreaks in Sydney Mel- and Melbourne in the winter mm. last year obviously drove a significant proportion of uh, people to go and get the vaccine. You know that was seen as the only way, the only way out. But from a communications pe- perspective, that was leveraged in a way which used those three appeals. So, yes, we had outbreaks, but actually it wasn't about, you know, um, the early days of COVID where um, a lot of the comms was around, you'll end up in hospital, you can end up on a, you know, a ventilator, et cetera. So there's a lot of fear driving the messaging. Um, I think the narratives, once those outbreaks did occur, were really focused, as I say, around um, go get the vaccine so you keep your, your grandma safe or... Um, you can go to your local cafe or you can go traveling overseas again. Um, they were much more uh, positive rather than driven by fear. Yeah. And what about the challenges? I mean, you've talked about some of them already, but you know, things like the mixed messaging around AstraZeneca, is it safe, is it not? Uh, you know, Obviously, a kind of loud group of anti-vaxxer messages out there, mm. uh, disinformation kind of being spread. I mean, how was that handled? from a communications perspective? Yeah, look, I think the, the mixed messages followed by different actions across the, the different uh, levels of government and uh, the different states um, confused a lot of people, um, you know, and resulted in people turning elsewhere for information and that there was obviously plenty of misinformation and disinformation floating around. Um, I think we unfortunately are paying the consequences of that now. The, the, the price is a more, much more divided um, society, much more... Um, uh, m- much more um, op- uh, well not open much more um, uh, susceptible if you like to misinformation and disinformation um, I I think the, the, the two things that strike me as um, ways to overcome that were you know leveraging of stakeholders to amplify messages you know business groups as I said before community groups religious groups etc so trusted groups almost um, making sure that the message isn't just coming from government, but it's coming from trusted groups. Uh, and the second thing is, how do you think about the grassroots? How do we create um, 
a social movement, if you like, that is driven from your friends, your family, your peers. Um, and, and that was really important as well. Those three appeals I talked about were also key, particularly in presenting alternative narratives, you know, not fanning the flames, challenging misinformation, maybe not directly, uh, but keeping what they call the Overton window closed as much as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're still fighting that battle now and, and it's going to be a long battle to make sure that people aren't uh, as susceptible to misinformation as unfortunately I think they currently are. Yeah. And so how do you how do you create that social movement? I mean, are there lessons here around different channels that work or approaches that work or like how how in practice can you can that actually happen? Yeah, look, I think there are the the there there are five and this comes back to I think, you know, behavior change and 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 a little bit of um what's relevant for communicators from a behavior change perspective and how we look and think about misinformation. I think there are five key things to to, to consider when we create um, social movements. And, and the first and probably the most important is a common cause. And obviously, COVID and getting vaccinated gave us that common cause. You also need a bit of a catalyst. Um, and you could say the outbreaks that we had last winter were that catalyst. Um, how we connect people to to that common cause through stakeholders, through stories is really key. Um, so that connection um, and obviously coordination and, and conversation. And we had lots and lots of conversation and, and, and um, probably most of us weren't talking about anything else for quite some time. Um, and the coordination can come not necessarily from government. Uh, it can come from stakeholders, from community groups, etc. So, you know, I think... Um, I think that that kind of social movement at the front line, um, at the grassroots, through stakeholders, through community groups was really important in overcoming a lot of the misinformation and in thinking about how we overcome some of the distrust in government. Yeah, so talk a bit more about that distrust. I know, Senate SHJ, have your own research, the Togetherness Index, which is just one of many studies out there showing the level in distrust in government deteriorated during COVID-19. I mean, what is that data showing and, and how can that distrust be overcome in more ways? I mean, you talked about having other trusted um, stakeholders kind of spread that message. I think, you know, I, I agree. I think corporates is a, is a good kind of way to do that. You know, there were big campaigns by the likes of Telstra or Qantas to kind of support that vaccination rollout, but it felt like that was a almost an afterthought or not really supported as much as potentially it could have been to get more corporates involved. But how can the how can this distrust in government, uh, when they've got such an important message to tell, be overcome? Yeah, and look, it's a good point. I mean, our, our 2020 Togetherness Index showed that you know, governments were cutting through, actually, at the beginning of COVID, uh, both at a state and a federal level. Um, almost 60% of people uh, said they were, you know, government was effective at keeping them informed about what was going on. Um, I think 2021 was the year where obviously as we've talked about that that change and, and trust in federal government uh, comes fell um, to just 42 percent just a third of people at that time were saying federal government communication was influential on their behavior which is really interesting considering obviously we were still trying to maintain covid safe behaviors and also get people vaccinated um um, you know, and as we've talked about, to be fair, it was a situation, you know, globally, which was, you know, challenging and there was no playbook. So let's not forget that. But, but in terms of the lessons, I think, um, you know, if we look back, I think we need to be, you know, transparent and a bit more authentic in our communication. 
we need to do what we say we're going to do. Uh, I think the, uh, the the Australian public has a good filter for inauthentic comms and half truths, and certainly political point scoring. I think that you know that that undermined the ability of government to cut through. So being transparent is important. I think being prepared to acknowledge faults and take the blame. Um, if you like, fess up when you mess up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, you know, our leaders tend to have a bit of an aversion to admitting fault because of the risk of um, looking vulnerable. Um, and yet, kind of, we know if you look at the best leaders, uh, it's okay to be vulnerable. Um, you only have to look at Ukraine and, and President Zelensky and, and his authenticity and his vulnerability is seen as a, an asset to leaders. And, and we didn't see that really from our um, from our own leaders. Um, and I think the stories were not the right stories and we didn't really see, we didn't really understand the perspectives of the, of, of, of the variety of communities um, that we were trying to communicate to until much later in 2021. Mm. And what about communicators? I mean, we speak a lot of in PR and comms about having a seat at the table and, and being part of the you know, strategic decision making. And, and there's obviously been a lot of discussion that the COVID's really put communication to the forefront. Do you feel um, from your experiences that, that that's really where we are now, that, that we're kind of, we are seen as an important part of that strategy and that planning direction? Yeah, absolutely. I think communication is now, well, certainly has the opportunity to be seen as more than just a PR campaign. Um, I think the depth of understanding around what it means to engage stakeholders as opposed to just manage your stakeholders is much greater as a result of, of COVID. And that notion of, you know, we operate in a whole system with many and um, complex stakeholders uh, is better understood. And I think... Um, communicators have helped people understand that and have an opportunity to continue to leverage that understanding as we move forward. Stakeholders are obviously critical as nodes of influence, if you like, helping to am- amplify, you know, amplify messages and underpin the behavior change that we want. But it's not just, you know, about stakeholders. Let's not get carried away in terms of um, us as communicators, obviously, um, policy and partnerships and the various other elements of uh, helping to shape behavior to drive behavior change are are still critical. It's just I think that comms now has a a greater opportunity to leverage its own role in helping to tackle some of the bigger social problems that uh, not just Australia, but but, that we face globally. And it sounds like even though we've said there was no playbook, it feels like the lessons learned from this really do inform the playbook, you know, the things you've spoken to about you know, using data for insight, behavior change, and and using the lessons of um, or the theory of behavior change to inform communications. Like, there's some really strong lessons here for communicators you know, moving forward, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is what I mean by, I think, typically and unfortunately, communicators has, have been seen as either spin merchants or very good at driving campaigns, very creative, building understanding and awareness. Actually. This is the probably the first time, certainly in my career, where communicators are now seen as essential in helping to drive social change from a, a government perspective. And if you think about from a corporate perspective to, to, to help organisations engage with, co-create uh, with their stakeholders to meet their, their community's expectations. Um, so a lot of what we can do, a lot of what uh, both corporates, government and not-for-profits see 
we can do and our role has, I think, changed in the last two years. And that can only be of, of benefit to not just communicators and, and our industry, but but those organisations, those governments that seek to, to, to use our strategic skills. And what do you see as the next challenge in the messaging around COVID-19? We've, we've gone into this phase of living with COVID, uh, but there's less of a focus on daily numbers, but it's still very much prevalent uh, in the community. So, I mean, how do you see that communication kind of challenge uh, evolving over the next kind of coming year? And I guess there's a couple of elements to that. There's the, the government perspective and, and what they need to do next, but also, you know, corporates are equally struggling with this, right, in terms of how do we get staff back to work and how do we communicate with clients and stakeholders and partners about, you know, the challenges and, and how we're approaching that. So I guess how do you see that moving forward in 2022? Yeah, I mean, look, there's obviously several challenges. I think the first challenge we face is is still a compliance and complacency one. Um, I do think that most people feel the pandemic is over, um, and um, uh, and as we head into winter, and as we already are seeing um, a new variant, complacency could be a bit of a problem. So we we do need to think about how we maintain. Um, communication that tries to drive COVID-safe behaviours that um, uses those behaviour change theories that we've talked about to 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 um, make sure people are maintaining um, uh, COVID-safe behaviours and they're still thinking about uh, you know getting their booster jab and so on. That just becomes harder and harder, though, right? Because people are, you know, as you say, everyone's over that kind of period we, we kind of all did the yeah. right thing and locked down and it kind of took the advice but it kind of gets harder the longer that goes on right it does uh, and, and look i think there are there are a group of people that we won't reach but we we still need to think about what's the tipping point for for people um maintaining those covid safe behaviors or thinking about doing the right thing when they do have symptoms we're not talking about lockdowns here we're not talking about you know um uh, all, all the harsher tactics that that have been used over the last two years. I, I think we're thinking about the things that actually make make sense from a purely health and economic perspective. It could be flu, for instance, or it could be you've got a cold or a cough. You know, if you go into the office, you pass that on to everyone else. There's nothing wrong with staying at home if you're sick, for instance. You know, those types of behaviours we need to think about from a communications perspective. Yeah. Probably, though, I think the bigger challenge for me is is how do we maintain social cohesion? Um, and how can communication help maintain social cohesion when we know that there is a bit of a, uh, well, a bit, a fair amount of polarisation in the community, um, which no doubt will uh, only be amplified through the upcoming elections. So how do we think about keeping our community together? And, and for me, it's about thinking around the human terrain. How do we uh, ensure that uh, people understand the, the big picture, you know, how how things, how we connect people to their communities, how we listen to what people are actually thinking, what, what, what's the sentiment out there that um, we need to be aware of when we're creating stories, when we're thinking about the channels we need to use to, to reach different people. And I think, you know, recognising again that it's not just a top-down thing, it's not just a government to, to citizens, that actually we need to think about how we create those conversations within communities and between communities that that um, help keep us all connected uh, at, at a time where I think a lot of people do feel um, 
uh, isolated or certainly that society is not as close as it was uh, in uh, the early days of 2020. Uh, so for me, that's that's a massive comms challenge, not only a comms challenge, but I think those are the, that's the type of thing we need to be thinking about and and grappling with uh, through 2022 and into 2023. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting insight that it's not just a top-down government message. It's the bottom-up is just as important in terms of delivering on that behavior change. I think that's that's really interesting. And what about for you personally? I mean, being kind of in the front line working on this, it obviously must have been kind of very rewarding, but also very you know, stressful at times and busy at times. I mean, it, I, I, there couldn't be a bigger kind of communication challenge that anyone would have to um, face into, I imagine. Yeah, look, I mean, personally, um, you know, as, as, as all good strategic communicators, it was a massive learning uh, curve uh, for me um, operating without, you know, without a playbook, but with some, as I said at the beginning, some core and good, solid communication principles to work with. Uh, you know, it's been in many ways for all of us like being in a crisis for permanently for the last um, you know, two years. So I think uh, one of the major lessons is, is don't do it on, on your own. Obviously, you, c- you can't. It's physically and mentally impossible. I think what I've learned, what Senate SHJ has learned, um, what my colleagues have learned will no doubt stand us in good stead as we kind of think about how we take the lessons of the last two years into all the work we do moving forward, regardless of whether that's with corporates or with government or with uh, with not-for-profits. Yeah, fantastic. Darren, thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting to kind of take that deep dive. I think last week it was two years since COVID was declared a global pandemic. And as I said up top, a year since the vaccination rollout. So it's been kind of interesting to reflect on that time and a story that's certainly not going away, unfortunately. But um, yeah, really appreciate your insights. Thanks, Paul. It's been uh, really enjoyable to have the conversation and just reflect on the last two years. I am Paul Cheel, and you've been listening to Smoke Signal. Thank you for listening, and as always, remember to rate Smoke Signal on iTunes or subscribe via the blog. Just search Smoke Signal Podcast.